Hello and welcome to this latest episode of Women in Confidence and welcome if you're new here. This is episode 40, so a milestone for me and I will certainly be celebrating once the episode goes live. Before we get going though with my guest, I just want to make a little announcement. So I recently resigned from my permanent full-time job to go back into running my own HR consultancy and coaching practice and also having the opportunity to focus much more on this podcast. And if you're a regular here, you'll know that sometimes the dates when I go live are a little bit sporadic, so it could be on a Tuesday morning or a Wednesday afternoon. So giving myself the space to think a bit more about this podcast, I'll be able to hopefully be a bit more consistent with my publishing dates. But the announcement is that I'm also designing a program, an online program for ambitious working women, and it's going to be called the ABC to Confidence. And what I'm looking for is 20 of my listeners or anybody who may be interested in stepping into confidence themselves to sign up for this course. It's a beta course at the moment, so it's absolutely in development, which is where you can really help me hone in to what women in, who work in and want to gain confidence really need. As I said, it's the ABC to confidence. So the A being awesome and authentic, B being brave and bold and see, be calm and connective. And it's a five-week program. And during that time, I've had lots of access to me, plus lots of content for you to learn and to grow your confidence. So I say I'm looking for 20 people to take part in this beta course for a small fee. If you're interested in understanding a little bit more about this program, please send me an email on contact at vanessa-murphy.com. And if you just put in the subject line, five-week program, I can send you all the details and you can make a decision. So yeah, the first 20 will get a space and yeah, more to come on that one. Dr. Carol Scott, hello and welcome to Women in Confidence. How are you? Oh, Vanessa, hi. I am so glad to be here. I am doing great today. And I know you're going to be doing great because I know exactly where you are, but um, tell the listeners whereabouts in the world you're coming from today. I am in Ensenada, a city about three hours south of San Diego. Um, I'm on the Baja Peninsula of Mexico. Is it, which sounds amazing. And I was saying to Carol earlier that she is the first guest I've had from Mexico or Central America. Um, and it's an area that I, I have been to previously um, when I used to be at university in San Diego. And so I know how oh. beautiful it is and how amazing it will be for creativity and just a, an amazing community, which we were talking about earlier. So Carol, I always start my podcasts with the same question, and it's a really good warm up to talking about confidence and what you're going to bring to this interview around sassy and sass and self-governance and ego and all this, this great conversation we're going to have. But the first question I always ask my guests is what does having confidence mean to you? This is a big one for me because I really entered adulthood, not only with no confidence, but with a fairly low opinion of myself and a pretty strong certainty that I really wasn't going to make it in the adult world. And so for me, confidence really has been about locating the person I was supposed to be and never got a chance to be. I grew up in a, a pretty uh, trauma-filled childhood. The household was not a healthy place for children. And so by the time I was 21 and presumably an adult, I was really pretty much still a toddler and preschooler, pretty distorted one running around in a grown-up body. And I had no confidence in my ability. And I think nor should I have <laughs> because toddlers don't belong in business meetings. Preschoolers don't belong as professors or instructors at universities. And these are the kinds of things I was doing. And so it's really been um, gaining confidence has been about gaining my self-awareness as a person, knowing who I am different from you and being really comfortable inside that skin. That feels like the be all and end all of confidence to me. I know what I think. I know what I want. I know how I feel and I'm good. And when did, so growing up and, and going through work, when did you reach a point where you really understood yourself and you were self-aware and you were like, okay, so this is me and this is who I am at the moment, but who I'm meant to be, I need to get to. How, how did, when did that happen? Um, I first went to, so I struggled from 21 till 30, <laughs> just 
being a toddler and a preschooler and a grown up body, I just struggled through. And then when I made it to my 30th birthday, which was astonishing to me, because I was pretty sure I'd be dead before I was 30. I, I went to therapy. I said, something has to change. I woke up, literally woke up the morning after my 30th birthday and said, you know, some version of this isn't sustainable. I can't keep doing this. And there's got to be something wrong with a person who lives like this, who appears to be a professional and is chaos underneath the minimally still surface. And, uh, and so I went to therapy starting at 30. And I would say the first seven years, it's interesting, things come in seven year cycles so often. Um, those seven years of individual and group therapy with other incest survivors, with a really terrific psychotherapist who specialized in um, sexual abuse, in domestic violence, in, in the women's issues of the world, um, I felt like I had a pretty strong platform and went out into the world thinking I knew what was what. And then I had to really apply all of that in level after level after level of growth. And I, I think I was more like about 45 to 50 by the time I felt really confident that I knew myself and I was starting to even find the deepest, most subtle triggers. I was still getting triggered and I was still reacting out of that preschool or toddler kind of place. And most of the time I could see it coming or I could oh, there it is when it happened and take a breath and step back and do something other than react. And so I think it really took me, I would say 20 years to get it all together. Now, that is a person who was really, really seriously damaged. That's not most of us. So don't feel like you can't start because you're 80 and you'll be dead before you finish. Because <laughs> I firmly believe it's never too late to begin and there's always time to, to grow. So the so it sounds like you went through what I class as trauma with quite a big, big T. But you're right. Some some of the traumas that people have are slightly more subtle, probably a bit more insidious, but can still really rock people's confidence and self-belief and self-efficacy and all the those kind of things. What was the one thing that you took out of your period of growth and really understanding yourself that's you can say was the one thing that really helped you wow that's big that's really big i think um honestly the the recognition the learning and the recognition and the acceptance that it, it really didn't it really did matter it really those those experiences for children really make a difference. And I think actually, you know what the big one has been is the putting together the early neural development, the brain wiring that happens. Literally, our brains get wired from birth forward for five years. And that my brain got wired by trauma. And it's perfectly, it was perfectly normal for me to be as crazy as I was. And just accepting that I couldn't have been any better. I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't uh, fail to be strong enough. I really got hurt because people were hurtful. And that just takes work. That just takes healing. It's like a broken leg, only it's a broken spirit. You got to put a splint on it. You got to put a cast on it. You got to give it some time to heal. And um, I think that really must be it. How would you describe your level of confidence now? Oh my gosh, it's off the charts. <laughs> I'd probably be, I'm probably experienced by an awful lot of people as overconfident. I hope I don't come across as having hubris, but I, I feel very, very confident in myself as an ego human, as a, a, you know, a human being with a brain. And I also feel very confident in myself as a spirit being, it's like spirit and shoes here. So <laughs> nothing really can get in my way. And you know, I'm, I'm also operating very effectively interpersonally mm. and that feels like well, what could go wrong. I know how, I know how to communicate and interact with and be a mutually respectful person in a relationship with almost anybody else. Hardly anybody can get me reactive or defensive or frightened or manipulated. I just don't fall for it anymore. Because I'm over here and I know who I am. But do you ever have those emotions still about perhaps you know, disliking somebody or them getting a reaction out of you or certainly the start of a reaction? Do you, 
are you aware of that still? Oh, yes. I, I see it. I'll, I'll tell you a recent story. When I first got here to the home that I'm staying in, the woman I'm visiting, I had a boyfriend who was pretty toxic. He's gone now. Yay. Um, <laughs> but he said something to me one evening when he and I were sitting at the dinner table and she was uh, over in the next space nearby at the kitchen sink. And basically what he did was insult me really deeply in a very subtle way. It was almost, it was like a thin shiv between the ribs into my heart. I almost missed it. But basically what he's saying is this person who's coming to visit us probably isn't going to be interested in hearing anything you know about child development because she's consulted with the top experts in the world about her child. Now, I have a PhD in child development and a 50-year career in child development and early education. I know a few things, and I probably know a lot of those experts that he was referring to. And what I real, what I, in the moment that he said it, I said, wow, that was it. That was a really cheap shot below the belt, but I heard it for what it was. It was jealousy. It was an attempt to get me. It was attempt to get me to react. It was a hook. And I just backed up and the hook went right by and I never even took it into my mouth because I felt it. I I kind of felt it viscerally. I felt it really in my body, but it wasn't about me. It's like, oh, okay. And so later you better believe that I complained about it and, and uh, said some negative things about it to, you know, his partner after he was gone. But I didn't see, I don't see any reason to respond or address those kinds of attacks from people like that. There's just no point. And so I was able to not do that, to make the choice. I really like what you said about it not being about you. And actually it's that other person, it's his jealousy or their jealousy, um, their I don't know, frustrations with themselves, whatever their emotion is, but it's just their way of expressing it. So it is absolutely not to be taken personally because it's definitely not about you. And I think that's a really good lesson for many people. If they're on the receiving end of criticism or feedback or whatever it is, it's through the lens of the other person. It's not actually real. It's not about you. It's their emotions surfacing. I think that's a really good lesson. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your work and anybody who has sassy in <laughs> any of their work has got to be on this show. But also <laughs> you talk about, um, as I said in the introduction, sort of success strategies. You've got a manifesto, which I absolutely love and we're definitely going to talk about. You talk about uh, leading and being free, big deal, all these all these incredible things that I've just found absolutely fascinating reading your work. So let's start with becoming your sassy self. Tell me a bit about that, please. The self-aware success strategies, the SAS, I conceive of as our birthright for social, interpersonal, emotional health. These are strategies that children use naturally when they're very young, and they either get supported in their use and uh, have adults in their lives who help them hone and refine and use those strategies very effectively interpersonally, or they learn that those strategies aren't acceptable in the world, and they learn a whole bunch of counterproductive, ineffective strategies like codependence, manipulation, bullying. And so to be yourself, to be self-governed, to be ego aware, to be a leader of your life and to be free in your life, to be free from, uh, you know, especially self-imposed barriers is kind of the way I think of the biggest freedom is when you stop putting the blurred blocks in front of yourself. So to be that self, a self-governed, ego aware, leading and free person really requires you to reclaim that SAS, reclaim those successful strategies that were inborn, innate in you, and maybe didn't get developed when you were young. Because at least in the United States, and I think a lot of Western cultures, um, we don't, we're not good at this. Parents and teachers of young children are not good at helping little kids foster integrate and use these strategies well. And so I call them your sass and let's get more sassy in our lives because we'll be better for the other people that we know. So do, who do you uh, predominantly serve in your work? Is it is it women? Is it um, parents or? Um, it's mostly been women um, up to this point that have 
been attracted to the work and have stayed with it. So every now and then a, a man or two will come to a workshop or something and uh, they don't stick. They don't stay. They don't come for more. Um, I'm not too sure why that is. Uh, it's it's okay with me. I, I love working with other women and uh, women who are parents of young children. Uh, particularly that audience is growing for me. I, I, I get, I do podcast episodes like this. Now I've done ooh, close to 40, I think. And um, a lot of them have been on podcasts for parents. And I did one for uh, a podcast that fosters parents, making sure their kids spend a lot of time outside and dozens of homeschooling and unschooling parents listened and said, oh, we need more of this because it's not about teaching curriculum. It's about teaching them how to be a better educator and a better parent. And they loved it. And so, yeah, that audience is really growing. The women who are parents are, is, but all women pretty much from about 35 on, they really get this. I'm just going to go back to something I think I heard you say around childhood and that sort of period of one to five, one to seven. And about being self-aware. Are children of that age actually self-aware? Because I I think my view is that they're not because they're more likely to do stuff that, you know, sing on a stage, dance like nobody's watching, you know, all that sort of thing. For me, and maybe it's my label of what self-awareness is rather than the the actual um, definition of self-aware, but are kids really self-aware at that age? That's a terrific question. And the answer is that they are becoming self-aware through this process, this developmental trajectory of gaining these success strategies. So at the very beginning, not at all. You know, our our word in child development for children under about the age of three is egocentric, not egotistical. They don't think they're more important than everybody else. They simply think they're at the center of everything. And so everything you do is about them. Every thought they have, every feeling they feel, they're pretty sure you think it and feel it right along with them. There's no, there's no boundary between you. It's like there's no skin. And in fact, when an infant, a newborn infant comes into the world, they aren't even aware for quite a while, several weeks to a couple of months, that they aren't part of you physically. They still think they're, you know, one with the mom, one with whatever caregiver is hanging on to them and feeding them. And so when uh, they get past... Uh, a few months, they suddenly realize, oh, there's a me that gets hungry and cries, and there's an other who comes. It's a it's a dance of I need something and somebody comes. I need something and somebody comes that teaches them that they're separate physically from the rest of the world. And that's the first original boundary of self when you're an infant. And then as you get older, move through toddler and into the preschool years, you start to gain an understanding that not only do you have this physical skin that is visible to everyone that divides you from the rest of the world, but you have a mental skin that holds your thoughts and your feet, your opinions and your beliefs. You have an emotional skin that holds all your feelings and you have what I would call a skin of soul or a skin of longing, the things you want. And that's where we mess kids sass up the worst, because we tell toddlers all the time that the things they feel and think and want aren't okay, mm-hmm. are wrong, are too big, are overwhelming, are so many things other than just perfect. And so through that process of individuation, big $25 psychological term that means becoming who you are as an individual, through that process of individuation, which continues until you're about seven, You don't really have a lot of self-awareness. You're really kind of gathering your understanding of yourself through interactions with other people. And it's the interactions with every other person in your field that teaches you and wires your brain up for, oh, that's who I am. That's how important I am. That's what I mean in the world. And that process of sort of understanding yourself and becoming yourself doesn't just stop at seven. I don't think, I don't think you get to, oh no, I certainly know that from being like 49 and thinking, actually, I think I'm going through the same process because I'm really stepping into, well, who am I? And what do I want to get out of the next part of my life? Um, so I don't think it ever stops, but what, does it slow down? How does it change when you become an adult and you step into the workplace and all those you know, things that come at you when you're at work and all those challenges that come at you when you're, you know, on in the media, you know, Instagram, friends, family, what changes 
when you get a bit older? That's a great question also. And really, it is true that our um, our development as a person comes and uh, it like rises and ebbs like the like the tide. It comes and goes in waves until we're uh, mid-20s. And then we're pretty solidly, we have our operating system pretty well in place by then. And we are getting what we want the way we get it. We are trusting people the way we trust people. We're, you know, getting along in the world pretty much the way we do, unless something comes along to drive a change. And if you had a good first seven years, that's probably all going pretty smoothly. If you didn't have a good first seven years, that's that's full of potholes and bumps in the road and cliffs to fall off of. And you need to get a lot more help and a lot more intervention. And so the life that happens after 25 either brings you things that foster, if you will, um, and further your ability to explore yourself and become more and more of the kind of person that you were meant to be, or you have to do some, you know, like corrective work. <laughs> That's kind of the way I think of my life. I had to, I had to go in for corrective uh, surgery on my soul and my feelings and all the parts of me. But that first seven years, what that's really about is the core of your personality. And so um, it starts with the, the neuroscience, the brain wiring. We're born with a skull full of neurons that aren't connected to each other, pretty much. They're almost all loose. It's like a bowl of spaghetti that nobody's plugged into each other. <laughs> and as we interact with our environment, both the physical environment and the human environment, those neurons come together and have electrical charges firing to connect them. And the more often two neurons connect with an electrical charge, the more likely they're to stick together after that. And so we're literally wiring the, we're, the hard wiring people talk about. We create it, almost all of it from birth to three. 85% of the human brain is wired by age three and then the rest of it pretty much by age five. So the reason I think it takes seven years to really kind of land on how you're going to walk out into the world at first is all that wiring kind of comes together. And then you need to kind of figure out what that means to you as a person and, and carry that into a personality. And I, by seven, all kids have really clear personalities that you they know who they are. Now, we come into the world with a temperament. So we're a certain kind of person, but who we really are, is pretty solid by age seven, unless something comes along to disrupt it. And those can be big, big changes, big losses, like the adverse childhood experiences that I talk about in my uh, book at, but I'll be offering your, your listeners. Um, those can happen after seven years of age, you can have a parent die, or um, you can suddenly have a change, uh, a parent, a new parent because of divorce and remarriage. And that new parent is not as kind to you is uh, maybe even abusive to you. So those kinds of experiences can go past seven, but they have the most impact on us when we're wiring our brains. Mm. I'm going to ask you, Carol, then about this hardwiring, because the women I see in my coaching practice, something has happened or things have happened. And it's almost like that wiring has snapped. And some, so what they think is the truth is no longer the truth. So, and I'll give you an example of somebody who was made redundant from a job they've been in for many, many years. And so their hard wire was, I'm in a stable, I'm in a job, I'm very successful, yeah. you know, I have status. And then suddenly that's gone. Is it possible to for that to happen, to the, the hard wire to just snap through something such as a redundancy or I didn't get that promotion or I've been bullied at work? And then is it um, possible to rewire it in a different way? To answer the second question first, always, brains are plastic. We can absolutely change our, our, our brain wiring. Neuroplasticity is a proven fact of how the brain operates. Um, whether the wiring can be broken or damaged by an event like that, uh, a, a non-physical event, um, I think it's more likely that there was already wiring there ready to react to that event. And what I mean by that is, you know, the... The work in neuroscience and um, applied neurology for adults. So things, things, the field where we've learned about things like emotional freedom tapping, EFT tapping, mm -hmm. uh, EMDR as a treatment in therapy, the kinds of treatments that uh, affect the nervous system directly. All of that comes out of the knowledge that that early wiring turns our nervous system into kind of an alarm system 
unnecessarily. And the, the part of our brain, the little base of our brain, little they call it the amygdala or the reptile brain, its job is to look around the world all the time like a little lizard darting its head and its eyes around going, am I safe? Am I safe? Am I safe? Am I safe? And some of us had our brains wired, our, uh, particularly our vagus nerve wiring of our brain, which continues down the side of your face and into your chest and down into your abdomen, that part of your brain, so that the answer always coming in from incoming data, the answer is always, no, you're not safe. No, you're not safe. No, do something right now to be safe because you're not safe. And so what happens, I think, when we have a trauma as an adult is some part of that nervous system wiring for saying you're not safe is gets triggered. It's been there like dormant. Or it's been triggered over and over again, and we've suppressed it with a cocktail at four o'clock every day, or a little weed on the weekends, or we eat too much ice cream, or, you know, when I was young, I just have been realizing this down here where I spend more time in the sun in this climate, I used to pick at my skin on my arm, find little bumps on my skin and pick at them until they bled. And my arm is covered with little white scars now, which I'd never seen until I came down here and got tan. And so we find ways to make ourselves feel safe that look really crazy. Pull your hair out, pick your teeth in public, all the things that we do to calm our nervous system. And so what happens then is some big event happens and it's too big. The cocktail at four doesn't do it anymore. Mm. You know, the, the whatever way we've been calming our nervous system isn't sufficient. And we fall into the I'm not safe, I'm not safe, and I don't know how to make myself safe place. That's terrifying. So when somebody not- does hit that point where they, they, they know they're not safe and their body's telling them, what's your advice then for people when they reach that point? I mean, one is being self-aware and knowing that's where they've reached that point. But then what's your advice for people when they've reached that stage of self-awareness and they don't know where else to go and what to do? Well, and I, in my work with people, I tell them the work of the self-aware success strategies can take you this far. And some of you need to go farther. Some of you need to get applied neurology work. You need to work with someone who can help you rewire your nervous system. What I do is repattern your behavior and repatterned behavior also rewires the nervous system. So if the wiring damage isn't too dramatic, that's enough. You just change your behavior and it slowly rewires your brain by you do it differently. But some people can't do the do it differently until they can get in there to that really faulty wiring and fix Mm. it. And so I refer them to an applied neurologist. Look, I want to talk about the success part of SAS and the success strategies, because we had a discussion earlier about success. What does success mean in your um, world and part of the SAS um, strategy? What does it mean to you? It means that whatever I choose to do, I can do it with confidence and know that it is uh, right for me, that I can find the part of me that knows what's right for me, follow it like a guide and know that I'm okay doing what I'm choosing to do. And I don't have to be successful in the classic white male defined corporate sense of I have a certain salary or I have a certain job title or I have climbed the ranks in a certain way. Um, It means that I'm really happy in what I do. I I heard a quote last night in a class I was taking. Uh, The man said, I no longer make a living. I no longer have to make a living. I now live what I am made of. And that, I think, is about the best definition of success I've ever heard. I am making my way in the world with who I am instead of with somebody else's definition of what I should do or how much money I should have. And I don't, you know, I haven't worried much about making a lot of money in my life. I've never been a corporate climber. I've been a, you know, nonprofit, higher education, public education kind of a gal. And, you know, my resources went up and down my whole career. I never was a very, very wealthy person. And, you know, now I drive around in an RV and, you know, pick up some dollars here and there speaking and coaching. And I don't really worry about it because I am living what I'm made of. I am at home in my mission. It feels like a life mission instead of a a job or a business. I really want to emphasize what you're saying here about success. And it's and, and it was in the language you were using, it was about me and I, rather than they 
and yeah. someone else's perception of success. Because often, and we talked about this earlier, success is very, it's an external view that's placed on you. It's almost like a cloak that you carry around. Right. When did you, or maybe you've always had this, but when did you get rid of your cloak and be like, no, success is exactly what I think it is. And it's exactly what I want. And I'm going to use my own terms for success. I, that really came to me fairly late. Um, I, it, I, my career went through kind of 10 year blocks. I did uh, early care and education in a university environment where I ran a, a preschool at a, at a university for about 10 years. And then I went into nonprofit leadership and public school program leadership for about 10 years. And then I went to work for myself as a consultant for about 10 years. And then I took kind of a capstone position as the CEO of a large state level nonprofit for about 10 years. And it was during that last block that I finally freed myself up from the, the kind of concrete boots of other people's expectations about being successful. And um, I, I used to say when I was young, when I grow up, I want to be a rich and famous child development specialist, <laughs> which is almost an oxymoron. <laughs> because Famous, you might be able to be as a child development specialist, but rich, you know, I'm never going to be Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos kind of wealthy from telling the people about child development. And, and so it really was uh, sometime during that, about halfway through that period as the CEO for that nonprofit, it suddenly dawned on me that when I stopped worrying about my salary and my benefits and whether I was going to make enough, and I really focused on what I was doing, the change I was making, the good I was doing in the world, the way I was making kids and families' lives better, everything was better. The work went better. I was more measurably successful. We had more outcomes. I got more grants. I had more good connections and a bigger network. When I started focusing on making money, all of that falls away. So I really kind of had the almost back and forth learning of, oh, when I do it like that, it just doesn't work. And when I do it like this, everything is possible. So that's kind of the way I approach my work now that I work for myself again is I focus on this being a life mission of changing for the better, the way people treat each other in this world, particularly the way we treat children. And if that's my focus, I'll make money. I'll make plenty of money. There's there's plenty of money out there. I'm sure I'll have enough. No, don't worry about it. What I really like about listening to you, Carol, is that from, and this is just my impression, is you are not a quick fix person. It's like, I'm talking about no. yourself in particular. You're not saying, look, I spent a bit of time talking to myself and Esther and doing a bit of analysis and look, overnight I was I was changed. You, What I'm picking up from you is you're saying, actually it has taken blocks of 10 years or it's taken, you know, seven years or to come to where you are now. And I think that's a really important lesson for people who who want to change, but are in this sort of, I don't know, this state of mind where it has to be instant and it has to be now and I have to be better and I have to be fixed. And I think that's a really good lesson for many people to learn. Um, do you do you get people who come to you and be like, Carol, let's just get this sorted overnight? Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the helpful message that I like to give people is the truth is it is better immediately. It is this much better immediately. And a little bit longer from now, it'll be this much better. And a little bit after that, it'll be this much better. It keeps getting better the longer we increase our self-awareness and the more deeply we know ourselves. You know, I kind of, I said, I said before, I think of myself as spirit in skin in shoes. And so if I'm, you know, as a, as a human being, what am I here for? I'm here to learn how to be a better human being. <laughs> I'm here to express and create life as best I can for as long as I get. Otherwise, what am I doing here? I don't, I can't believe that life as a being on this planet is about getting up, going to work, coming home, going to bed, earning and spending, and that's it. That's not for me life. Life is learning who I am. Life is rich interaction with other people. Life is knowing people deeply, getting to the heart of who they are and letting them get to the heart of who I am. That's that's life, that's success, that's growth. And it, it is, it's a lifelong process. If I'm not still learning right before I slip into dementia or stop breathing, something's wrong. <laughs> and in this evolution of Carol, what have you had to shed along the way to get to where you are? Well, the first thing I had to, to get rid of was the, um, 
really the impact of the trauma, the history. So um, I come from the framework of there's two kinds, uh, two big kinds of ways that we can mess with kids. One is what they call the adverse childhood experiences. And these are, this is what a lot of people call them, they, um, but they've been defined by research as 10 experiences that are so damaging to children that they not only affect the emotional and psychological life of the adult, but they actually have an impact on the physical body. There are these people with um, several ACEs in their background, adverse childhood experiences, are more likely to have um, diabetes, cancer, um, heart attack, all kinds of physical debilitating diseases. They're more likely to have lower incomes um, as adults, to be less successful in the kind of traditional sense as adults. And so I really had to face the fact that the happy, happy, joy, joy picture that my childhood that I kind of pasted together from a few little tidbits really was a fake front. And really what I was coping with was seven out of the 10 adverse childhood experiences in my um, early childhood before I was nine. So the if, for those who don't know them, that's three kinds of abuse, physical, emotional, and sexual, two kinds of neglect, physical and emotional, and then five patterns of family dysfunction that include um, divorce or death of a parent, loss of a parent to death or divorce, um, alcoholism or drug dependency in a parent caregiver, adult caregiver, generally, um, uh, the uh, abuse of one caregiver by another in your presence, domestic violence, clinical mental health diagnosis in one of your adult caregivers, bipolar, depressed, postpartum depression can wreak havoc on a newborn baby. Um, and then the last one is, I always forget the last one. Why is that? I said alcohol. Oh, involvement in, uh, in crime, either actively engaged in crime in the household or in uh, prison, gone from the family in prison. So those 10 childhood experiences, if we have those, we have a special challenge and we probably need to deal with that before we can even begin to do some of the work of building our success strategies interpersonally. We need to get healed from those traumas. That that kind of um, childhood, especially if it goes on for years and you can't get away from it, you can't get uh, somebody to protect you, it creates complex post-traumatic stress and it's it affects your life. So first those, and then the other way in which we can get really limited in our uh, capacity to be an effective interpersonal being is what I call missed opportunities for development, MODs, MODs. So you got your ACEs, you got your MODs. And those are just ways in which the adults who care for us miss an opportunity to support the successful evolution of an interpersonal being. And they teach us wrong things like, you're a boy, so you can't cry. <laughs> you're a girl, so you can't rage. Uh, you know, those kinds of lessons come really early. Being yourself, being the wild, carefree toddler who dances like nobody's looking is not okay. Your needs are too much for me. You overwhelm me, kid. You know, all these things that we learn mean that we don't get all of this interpersonal wealth and health that comes with those first seven years. And we walk into eight through 25, manipulating people, charming people, fawning over people, bullying people, being a doormat for people. Those are strategies too. They just don't work very well to get us healthy relationships. So if anybody's listening and they're like, I had never heard of ACEs or I'm like, you know, people are listening and thinking, gosh, I, I've actually been through some of that, those ACEs. Mm -hmm. What, what could you advise them to do bearing in mind that with, you know, women and confidence and some of this stuff that happened in their youth and the 10 ACEs could be affecting their confidence. Now, what would you say if anyone's like, wow, Carol's just explained my childhood to me. Um, if, I would say that if you are one of the people who experienced two or more ACEs, you know, find somebody to talk to, find a competent professional, whatever works for you, anywhere from a pastor to a, a psychotherapist, a counselor, um, you know, a social worker, excuse me, who understands that dynamic of what the adverse childhood experiences are, how they wire our brains. And even if you're not sure, 
you know, like I said, I really had created a pretty false image of my childhood. I wouldn't have told you at 25 that any of those things had happened to me. But as soon as I said to a counselor, there's just something wrong with my life and I don't know what it is. I mean, what if something really terrible happened to me when I was a child? I just like just came out of my mouth in a counseling session. And he looked at me, said, why would you say that? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking about. But there it was. It was the doorway. And so sometimes all you have to really know is it's not working well. I don't know why it's not working well, but I am. I drink too much. I eat too much. I get into bad relationship after bad relationship after bad relationship. I don't feel successful in my life. Then it's time to talk to somebody and see if you can uncover why. There's a reason. You're, you're not just faulty. Well, I want to talk about your SAS manifesto because there's a term in there that I really want to pick up on and understand from you. But the ones I picked out on is around your negotiation. And it says, I deserve to have what I want. Is that right? And I think that's great because that's such a strong, powerful message. And then the other one I really like is vision. And you say, I deserve to try my hand at anything and be supported in my efforts. And I think Mm -hmm. that one to me resonated the most because I am going through this evolution myself of trying things and and I guess I've always been in that space, but for now it feels like I'm really stepping into my vision of what Vanessa mm. really is mm. here for and really is going to, to achieve in this world. Now, but the one thing I want to talk to you about, Carol, and, and everybody who's listening will be able to um, have a look at this manifesto because you've got to, because it's amazing, is I deserve is the first two words of every statement in your manifesto. Tell me about why you have written them as you have. It's really, uh, I so love that you, nobody's ever asked me that. (laughs) No podcaster, nobody has ever asked me that. And I love that you focused in on that because it really ties back to what I said about these are your birthright. You have a developmental programming when you're born to bring you opportunities to learn how to trust people, to learn how to be independent as a self, to believe in miracles, believe in the impossible, believe in magic, believe in anything you want to believe in, to negotiate to get what you want, to have a vision and engage people as a leader in its execution, to be able to compromise in a group, and to be able to accept when things don't go your way. We all have those seven success strategies programmed into us as a birthright is the way I look at them. And there is a logical developmental progression as true as the developmental progression of how kids learn to walk, how they learn to talk, all it's their social and emotional birthright. And so you have the right to have these things. You deserve them and your life with them is radically different than it is without them. So I think that's another really, reason you deserve them. Well, I think <laughs> that you deserve just, that great life. <laughs> deserving, um, and I deserve is a really good affirmation uh, for yeah. anything that's you know. I deserve to be successful. I deserve to achieve. You know, be my own boss. I whatever anybody who I deserve to be confident. There we go. There's there's one that's absolutely yeah. perfect for this podcast. Is such a powerful statement. Does, does does that statement and saying it to yourself or reading it or seeing it, does that go back to you what you were saying around hardwiring your brain or mm-hmm. reforming some of those connections? Is I deserve, I deserve, then you start to actually believe it, like through your soul, through your body. Yes, absolutely. That's part of that. I repattern my behavior, I rewire the network. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I wonder if I might take a, just a couple of minutes to kind of talk through that developmental progression yeah, and show how it. it fits with what kids do. So, you know, I said before, babies are born and they're not sure that they're a separate being. They think they're still at one with whoever is physically caretaking them. And they learn to they learn the strategy of trusting someone else through that dance of I need something, somebody comes. So if, if I'm a a newborn infant lying in my crib and I wake up and I'm hungry, my experience without really a lot of, I don't have any language yet. So I can't think about the fact that I'm hungry. I can't process the feeling in my body. I just have this feeling of big hollow emptiness in the middle of my body and it hurts. And so I scream, I scream, help me, help me, help, help. I'm dying. Help. I'm starving. Help, help. And somebody comes. And they feed me or nobody comes 
And I lie there screaming, help, help, help in the dark for a long time. And somewhere on that continuum, we all have experience. So either we had adults who came right away and took care of what we needed. They changed the wet diaper. They fed us. They did whatever. And what we then wired our brains around is this pattern. I need someone comes. I need someone provides. I need someone meets my need. And that's really what trust is all about except we turn it into something completely different by the time we're adults. But really it's about having needs that other people can meet and knowing who meets them. That's it. And then as they get old enough to get up and move around in the world, they get up on their legs and they start walking and they start understanding language and start imitating language and using it to express themselves. They come into the toddler period and now that they can get out and be something other than a little limp noodle in our arms, they're like finding out what the world is and they're experiencing their, themselves in new ways. And so they want stuff and they reach for it and they grab a hold of it. And sometimes that's our hair or our cheek or our glasses. And sometimes it's some bright, shiny object that's breakable on a shelf at grandma's house. And sometimes it's a dirty candy wrapper off the sidewalk. But they see something and they want it and they grab it. I want, I take, I feel, I express I'm angry, I'm happy, I'm whatever I feel, it's right there on the surface and I express it. I also uh, think things, I have ideas. And so I try to tell people. And so toddlers start talking, blah, 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 blah. they babble and babble and they go on and on and on. And we haven't a clue what they're talking about, but they are expressing thoughts at that point. They just don't have all the muscles in their mouth and their cheeks to make any sense out of it for a shit. So how the adults around them respond to all of that really helps them learn either what I think is relevant, important, and people want to hear about it. What I want is okay, and people let me have it. And what I feel is, you know, received. They're like, oh, wow, you're angry. Oh, wow, (laughs) you're happy. And they see me for who I am, and they accept me for who I am. Then I learn, I wire my brain around, it's okay to want what I want, think what I think, feel what I feel, as long as I don't step on anybody else's toes with it, you know, I can be myself. And I don't have to edit myself, I don't have to curate any of this away into a box somewhere under the bed, I get to be who I am, and everybody loves me madly anyway, right? That's the success strategy of independence, being your your most true self. Then it's like after two years of like me, 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 egocentrism, the three-year-old, like literally, I swear there's a day when they pick up their head and look around the world and go, look at all this stuff too. (laughs) There's all these people and there's all this stuff going on. And they start to get really excited about the things that they can't understand because everything's a mystery at that point. They have no logic. They have no ability to think about cause and effect, how things fit together. They just look at everything and think it's magical. And so they believe in everything. And that's the success strategy of faith, to simply believe that all things are possible. And whatever you dream up, you can do. Three-year-olds will often tell the adults in their lives that they're going to do pretty wild things like grow up to be unicorns or, you know, the opposite gender. We used to tell kids they can't do that, but it turned out it was a lie. So when the kids learn that it's okay to be all of that, then they go on and be all of that. And when they learn that that, none of that's okay with the people around them, they do that. They curate it away. They trim it away. They hide it away. They say, okay, I'll be, I'll conform because you are what keeps me alive. I can't afford to upset you or be what you don't want because I would die without you. They know that innately. Okay. So here they are. They're all full of all this, you know, Life is beautiful and everything is possible energy. And then they get to four and they start realizing, wait a minute, there's something else going on here too. There need to be some rules. Magic is fine. Miracles are fine. But, you know, we need some structure in life. And so they become the little uh, diplomat, Henry Kissinger uh, negotiators, Ford Motor Company negotiators of the world. And they cross their arms and they say, let's have some reality. Let's have some rules. Let's figure out how things work. And the strategy of the four-year-old is to get what they want inside of the limits that other people have. They're like figuring out your box. So when you ask a child about lunch, you're going to serve one of your kids a lunch, or you're a teacher at a program and you offer a snack. The kid knows there are rules around what you're offering. 
there are there are limits that you won't cross. You aren't going to hop in the car and go shopping somewhere to get him the one ingredient that's missing for what he wants, right? And so he gets it that there are oh, there's like sensibility. There's there's a it has to be in the house. She's not going to go shopping. It has to fit with what we're having for dinner. It has to be nutritious, whatever mom thinks that is. And so they start to learn that they can want what they want, but they have to deal with what other people want in order to get what they want. And they learn to do win-win. They learn how to give you what you want and get what they want if you support it. If, you, if you're a my way or the highway kind of parent, they don't learn that. And they learn, I can manipulate you into getting what I want. I can bully you into getting what I want, but I can't get it by just straightforwardly asking for it and negotiating with you. Then we get the five-year-old and five-year-olds are all about um, becoming community partners with other kids. They become people who coordinate and plan things together. Um, and if you've ever been had the great good fortune to be with a group of five-year-olds, you can watch them spend an hour planning how to play something mm-hmm. without ever actually playing it. Right. Because it's all about the planning and the leadership and the, um, you know, well, what about if you do that? It's like they're scripting together and learning how to get along as co-leaders in a creation process. And so I call it vision because it isn't just about having a goal. It's about having the leadership of a goal with that has oomph behind. It's a goal with leadership. That's a vision to me. And so you find the kid pretty quickly who in the little group of five-year-olds is the one directing the play. And the rest of them are nodding their heads. <laughs> okay, I'll do that. And then at six, their community expands, it explodes, they have a whole lot more people to deal with, and they have to start win-win one-on-one doesn't isn't enough anymore. They're in a group of people. And instead of just, I want this and you want that, it's like, I want 10 things, you want 10 things, and there's 20 other people here and they all want 10 things. And so it becomes about determining values and making decisions based on what's most important to us. You know, well, I want these 10 things, but what's the thing I value most right now to get out of this interaction with you? And what's the, can I figure out what's the thing that is most important to you so that I can make sure that you get what you want as well? It's still about, it's, I would call that creating community. Mm-hmm. At four, it's about a win-win one-on-one. And at six, it's about creating a community ethos, making a world that works for everyone. And then finally at seven, you find out, and you know what? I do all that stuff great. I get along with people perfectly. Everything's hunky-dory. I'm really good and nice and kind, and I'm a leader. And still, bad things happen sometimes. Bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people, which is even more confusing. People who aren't nice get rewarded. People who follow the rules have really bummer experiences. I can follow all the rules, do all my homework, uh, listen to my parents, and somebody can get cancer. Somebody can die. You know, it's like the world that that place of building logic that started at around four finally has matured in the six-year-old. Six-year-olds finally are pretty basically logical. And then all of a sudden at seven, you're like, but wait, it isn't always logical. There stuff happens that defies what I think of as logic. And how do I ride that surf of change? How do I, you know, go through the ups and the downs and the ins and the outs and the bads and the goods and still stay okay, still stay successful as myself? So that's the process and the trajectory. And literally, it's a program, social and emotional development process that is demonstrable. You were saying about this, I want or I need and somebody comes I don't think it ever goes away. And I think I was thinking of my 15-year-old boy who still is in that cycle. But also I see it in my job. People want something and they come to me because they think I can supply it or they, yeah, I go to their rescue. And I think it might have been formed at a young age, but it's still absolutely a powerful, powerful part of who we are. I want or I need somebody's going to come and help me. Does, is that diluted when you're older? Um, you become. I think it kind of goes, it kind of goes subterranean. It goes underground, <laughs> and we pretend like we don't need things. Lots of adults don't like to need. They don't like to need anybody else for anything, and they, the word needy is pejorative. But you know what? We're all needy. We're human beings with needs, and the needs shift a lot from infancy. Their 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 bottom of Maslow's hierarchy survival needs, their food, their 
warmth, their protection from harm. In adults, they're very highly sophisticated interpersonal needs, their needs for validation, the need for being seen for who I am, the need for feeling that I'm of service in the world, that I make a difference, the need to be in a community and feel like I belong. You know, so when we get attacked for those needs as an adult, those of us who didn't get our needs supported when we were infants tend to respond with shame. I'm too needy. I'm too much. And it's like the head drops and don't look at me now. Right. And so, yeah, we still need things from other people, but the self-awareness to know what's happening right now. Why am I upset at this person? Oh, I needed validation and I didn't get it. Huh? that's a different kind of dynamic to trust than I need a bottle and you brought it. You said a comment which really brought up some feelings for me and some further questions was around, you said, I'm too much and that can bring out shame. And I think that for me is something I think women here, perhaps they're programmed from a very, very young age, but certainly even now women are too much. You're too loud. You're too pretty to be this you're to whatever label you put on things I mean even you said at the beginning perhaps I am overconfident perhaps you know and some people be called well you're too arrogant you're too vocal you're too questioning and I see this in the workplace of, of women in particular who are labeled this that and the other how can we shed some of this I'm too much and just be like I am who I am This is really the heart of the work that I do, because almost everyone I work with in any environment, the core work is around going back to trust and independence as success strategies, particularly independence. If you tell me that I'm too much, I make too much noise, I take up too much space. If I believe you, it's because I don't know myself. It's because I've lost that container, that boundary of self that I get in independence that says, I'm okay just the way I am. If you tell me that I'm too much, I take up too much space and I know I'm okay, I just laugh. It doesn't affect me. I say, well, I'm not everybody's, you know, I'm not everybody's taste. That's okay. You don't have to like me. And I really don't care. It's not just talk. I really don't need everyone to like me. I like me. And the reason I like me is because I have those boundaries of self. I know what I think, what I feel, what I want, and I'm okay with all of it. If you don't like it, that's okay. You can go make friends with somebody else. I have lots of people who like me. I think that's a great way to now start talking about how people can find you because that's such a powerful message to land on. It's like, I like me. And if you don't, well, there's plenty of people out in the world. There's God knows how many billions of people in the world who might appreciate you a bit more. But um, let's talk about how people can contact you, Carol. Sure. Well, first of all, I'd like to offer all your listeners, and this is evergreen, no matter when you listen to this, whether it's right away or sometime later, I'd like to offer my book, Becoming Your Sassy Self. It's a little 28-page bookette, I call it, a little 28-page PDF um, that describes this framework, talks about how we develop these things, talks about the ACEs, gives you the manifesto. It's one of the pages in the book. Um, and so anybody who wants that can just email me at Carol at lcarolscott.com and ask for it. Please put either Vanessa's name or the name of the show in the subject line and I'll send it right back to you. And then, you know, that website is a good place to start. My podcast episode recordings are available through my website and you can also follow me on Instagram, on Facebook and on LinkedIn if you're into that business to business kind of world. So people can absolutely find you. And what I'll do, Carol, is I'll put all those links in the show notes anyway. So people can just click on those and go straight to you. So just to wrap up the conversation, what's the one piece of advice you'd give to people, uh, women and particularly, who want to either understand themselves and confidence more or to start building confidence? What's your one piece of advice? I really think all of the success strategies begin with self-awareness. That's why they are called self-aware success strategies. And the very first step is to start noticing yourself more. Notice the ways in which you're showing up. If you don't like something that you do, if you're concerned that, you know, that bowl of ice cream every night at nine o'clock maybe isn't the greatest choice for you, or the fact that I, you know, if you say to yourself every morning, I should do yoga, (laughs) I should go for a run, and you don't. You know, if you're concerned about any of those patterns that feel like I'm not really living the choices that I would like to to be living, 
then look at look deeper. Don't just look at yourself and say there's something wrong with me. Look at why. Ask yourself why. Why am I not? What am I afraid of? What do I hope will happen if I do? Start asking yourself the bigger questions um, that lead to self-exploration, curiosity. Stay curious about yourself. Never be con never be the kind of confident that says, I completely understand myself. That's a mistaken confidence, I think. Be the kind of confident that says, I am amazing and I'm going to go find out more about who I am. And I love what you said. Um, you said you're going to be learning and curious until maybe your last breath. And I love that. And I think that's a great end to this, this conversation is like carry on learning about yourself and learning. about the world and other people, because there's so much out there. Well, listen, Carol, yeah. thank you very much for being on the show. It's been amazing. I know with, with you, I could probably talk for a long, long time and we've only really <laughs> just scratched the surface. I think there's so much more to explore, but thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Vanessa. It's been delightful.